Well, in the early part of the 19th century, an accomplished artist painted a picture that depicted a chess match between a young man and Satan. It was really an interesting uh, painting. The artist himself was an avid chess player, and this painting was his way of uh, illustrating the dangers of the power of evil for those who are ill-equipped to do battle in the spiritual realm. And so I'm going to try to describe this painting for you. I couldn't find it online, but the issue at hand in this game, as portrayed on the canvas by this uh, painter, was this. Should the young man win the game, he was to be forever free from the power of evil. Should the devil win, the young man would be the devil's slave forever. Now, of course, let me hasten to add the theology behind this artwork is terrible. <laughs> but as we learn more about the painting, a fascinating illustration emerges. So in the painting, the young man is playing the white pieces and the devil is playing black. And in the conception of the artist, the devil had just moved his queen and had announced a checkmate in four moves. Now, if you play chess, I grew up playing chess, played for my high school uh, chess team, and my uh, dad taught me to play. My sons are also very, very good uh, chess players. And, and when you play chess competitively, especially when you, you know, the, you're talking about grandmasters and people that are just off the charts good, they're seeing five, six, ten moves down the road in their mind's eye. And so a lot of times when they make a move that they know and they can see is inevitably going to lead to a checkmate, they'll say something like mate in three or mate in four. And, and it's basically their way of telling the opponent, look, you know, we're still a few moves away, but you're sunk. You have no hope. This game's over. It's a guaranteed checkmate. So they'll say mate in, in four or whatever. And so as this painting uh, depicts, the devil moves his queen. He announces a checkmate in four moves. And the painting shows the young man's hand hovering over his rook, his face paled with fear as he realizes there's no hope. The devil wins. He's going to be a slave forever. Well, for more than a century, that painting hung in a gallery, fascinating onlookers of all ages. Even people that didn't know anything about chess, they could sense the anxiety in the young man's face in that fateful moment on the painting. Well, then one day, a guy by the name of Paul Morphy, a grand master chess player from New Orleans, of all places, happened upon the painting. And as he was about to walk past it, he looked at it and something just didn't seem right to him. So Morphy stood before the picture, five minutes, 10 minutes, 15, 20 minutes. He was in deep concentration. As he looked at the painting, he, he lifted and lowered his hands like he was making and eliminating imaginary moves. And suddenly his hand paused as his eyes burned with the vision of an unthought of series of moves. And he shouted as if speaking directly to the young man in the painting. That's the move. Young man, make that move. And to the amazement of all, the old master had indeed discovered a combination that the creating artist had not envisioned. Not only was there a defense against the devil's supposed sure victory, but also the young man would in fact go on to defeat 
the devil if he followed this series of moves. Now, there are many lessons to be learned from this true story. Chief among them, though, is when the odds are stacked against you, never give up. Never give up. As we continue our look at Luke's historical account of the early church, we find the Apostle Paul once again in an impossible situation. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 23 as we pick up where we left off last time. By the way, I encourage you to bring your Bibles uh, to church with you. I know a lot of people have them digitally on their tablet or smartphone. That's fine. We also have printed Bibles out in the lobby. Those are yours to take. Uh, if you need one or you know somebody who needs one, please feel free to take those as our gift uh, to you. But when we last left Paul, he was facing false accusations before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council of 71 people counting the high priest made up of Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes. And you'll recall when the council became frenzied during that meeting, they nearly tore Paul to pieces. So the commander of the Roman guard, Claudius Lysias, stepped in. And once again, he takes Paul into protective custody back at the fortress of Antonia. The date, which we know from piecing together internal and external evidence from Scripture and key time markers that the Bible gives us in the text itself, was June 3rd, 57 A.D. So the Roman guard takes him away, barely getting out of the chamber of hewn stone where the Sanhedrin was meeting, to take him back to the fortress. And Paul was undoubtedly wondering how he would ever get out of the mess which he found himself in, that just kept rearing its ugly head. It was like a roller coaster ride. One minute he's about to die, the next minute he's being pulled away. One minute he's being hauled off, the next minute he's allowed to speak. Well, at this critical moment, that very night, the Lord appeared to Paul, and the Bible says, stood near him. Stood near him. Do you ever feel like you need the Lord to stand near you? Yeah. Amen. You know, we we understand theologically, especially if you're a believer and you've studied the Word and, you know, sat in good Bible teaching churches, we know the theology that God is omnipresent, that the Lord is everywhere present at all times. He's always with us. But, you know, sometimes when you're facing the trials of life, you need that presence in a special, unique way. You know, when the Lord was on the earth, uh, walking with his disciples and teaching and meeting people for three and a half years, his disciples could walk right up to him and talk to him directly. They could give him a hug. He could give them a hug. There was that physical touch and physical presence. And that's why Jesus, the very night that he was betrayed, told the disciples, look, I'm about to go away. Things are going to be different now. And we're not going to have that physical, personal touch that I had while I've been with you here in the flesh. But he says, I'm going to leave you with a comforter, the ministry of the Holy Spirit in a unique way, uh, who's going to indwell believers permanently, which he did starting on the day of Pentecost. And he's going to be there to convict and encourage and, and assure you and comfort you. But it's going to be different. And I think it took the disciples, you know, here we are some 
34 year, or 24 years rather into the church age, so more than two decades, it took them a while to settle into this new normal where they couldn't just run to Jesus for help physically. Um, but now I want you to fast forward 2,000 years. And I think somehow over the last 2,000 years of church history, as we await the return of our Lord, we've kind of fallen into this situation where we, we forget the Lord's presence. And we never even got the chance to walk with Him and talk with Him. Yet, we'll get that chance after the rapture. But still, even though we know the theology... We, we, we don't really own it. We don't really lean into it. We don't really often rely on the presence of the Lord like we see in this very intimate moment here in Acts chapter 23. So as we look at this text, I want us to answer the following question. What should we do when the odds are stacked against us? And the first thing that I see is we need to lean on the Lord's presence. Uh, you know, the Lord's appearances to Paul all occurred at times of great crisis in his life. And that's when we need his presence more than any, any time else. And on this occasion, as we're going to see in a second, he told Paul to be courageous. We'll come back to what that means. And he assured him that he would testify about Christ in Rome as he had already done in Jerusalem. And those words must have given Paul great confidence uh, as the events that followed unfolded. He knew that he was going to escape with his life because God had just, the Lord had just given him a promise that he would in fact make it to Rome, which he had been wanting to do for years to preach the gospel uh, to them. So let's look at the first verse. But the following night, this is after the mayhem that took place in the chamber of hewn stone there in the meeting of the Sanhedrin council. The following night, the Lord stood by him. I love that phrase. The Lord stood by by him. When no one else will stand with you, when you're all alone, when the odds are stacked against you, the Lord is there. And we need to lean on his presence. When's the last time you really felt the unmistakable presence of the Lord? Don't get all theological on me. Look, I, I'm a theologian. I get it. We know he's there. I mean, you felt the fresh touch of the Lord. Not in a mystical way, not in an aberrant theological way, but you know that inner convicting voice of the Holy Spirit in your life and the Lord's saying almost as if he was putting his arms around you, I'm here. That's what Paul needed. And that's what happened. The Lord stood by him. This, of course, was not the first time the Lord had appeared to Paul. Paul's relationship with the Lord began with a one-on-one -on -one interaction. Remember, as he was on the uh, way to Damascus to kill and murder Christians and drag them from their homes, a, a light suddenly shone around him from heaven. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, that's Paul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And then watch this. The Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. That was the first time Paul had met the Lord on a personal level. Of course, he believed in him. He became born again. And then he spent the rest of his life serving the Lord. At Corinth, near the end of his second missionary journey, the Lord again appeared to Paul. And he said, the Bible says, Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent, for I am with you. And he again gave him an, an encouragement and a promise, as we're going to see him do in this chapter 23. 
He said, no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. I remember when we talked about this passage months ago in our series, it was really comforting to me to think about how the Lord has many believers in every city. As we travel around, we just got back from Florida, or I did. My family's still there for our next conference this coming week. But we met all kinds of new believers, and it's just an immediate connection and that common bond of the Holy Spirit. And it's just encouraging, especially as we look at the global scene and see how the whole world is under the sway of the wicked one, 1 John 5, 19, to know that there are believers around. But in this case, the Lord once again appeared to Paul, and he says, I am with you. Now, just two days before the outcry before the Sanhedrin that we looked at last time and that we're picking up with this time, just two days before that, if you remember, Paul was speaking on the steps surrounding the temple to the mob. He was being carried away. He convinced the commander to let him speak, and then he speaks to the mob. And that was another occasion where, as Paul's speaking, he ends up getting nearly torn to bits because he his, his speech was abruptly interrupted when he said to them, um, you know, God basically God has sent me to the Gentiles. And when they, these unbelieving Jewish leaders heard that, they went berserk. And that's when Paul, for the first time, gets led away by the commander to protective custody. And then, as we looked at last time, the Jewish leaders, you know, convinced the commander to let them examine Paul. And he wanted them to do that because he didn't know what in the world's going on. Why are these people so upset with this guy? I'm not a Jew. What's going on? So they, he appears before the Sanhedrin. Once again, they go berserk. But in that speech, again, just two days before the Sanhedrin meeting, Paul, as he's speaking on the steps, refers to another time when the Lord had appeared to him that we wouldn't know about if Paul hadn't mentioned it in that speech. And it happened three years after his conversion, during that 14-year period while Paul was basically alone with the Lord, studying, preparing, and before he began his, his ministry. And Paul, in that speech, tells us, it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I was in a trance and saw him saying to me, the Lord appearing to Paul. On that occasion, he said, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. Uh, and then, you know, we could go back to uh, the, the, the right before Jesus ascended to the right hand of the throne of God when he promised the disciples and all believers, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. From the earliest days of the church, the Lord has made his presence known. It started the church birthday started on a mighty move of God, manifestation of the presence of God. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, Acts 2, 1 and 2, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And we know that was the uh, what Jesus had promised was going to happen in Acts chapter 1. It happens. It's the beginning. Peter later, later calls it a beginning. It was the beginning of the church, and we can make that case that that's when the Holy Spirit... Uh, you know, began baptizing believers into the body of Christ at the moment of conversion. But that was another mighty move of God. And for, so from the very earliest day that the church began, we see this. We see another example uh, in early days of the church when Peter and John were arrested after they had healed the lame man at the beautiful gate. And, of course, the unbelieving Jewish leaders were all upset about this. And so once again, they got dragged into the Sanhedrin. This time it was Peter and John. This was before Paul's conversion. And, but they refused to be silenced. And after they were let go, they met with other believers and they prayed. And guess what happened when they prayed? God showed up. You know, it doesn't matter to God that, humanly speaking, 
The odds seem stacked against us. God shows up in the most unexpected ways and the most unexpected times. And I really believe if we as believers will, will, will stay focused on what God is doing, stay focused on the souls that need to be saved, on the people that are coming to this church. You know how many churches would love to have the problems that we've had over the last six months with parking and seating and all of that and have people, you know, 11 people baptized last year and putting in a new baptistry so that those who are on the waiting list can be baptized again. And every person that walks through these doors, I don't care if it's your first time, we have a lot of first-time guests today, or you've been coming since before I came three years ago. You, that's a soul that's important to God. And if we would stay focused on the clear, accurate, and urgent proclamation of the Word of God, particularly the gospel message, it's amazing what God would do. God would show up in unexpected ways. We saw a glimpse of this, by the way, just to kind of give a brief commentary on some current events. We, we, we saw a, 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 son of a, a, a manifestation of this in modern times recently with the revival that took place at Asbury University. And I, I can't tell you how many emails and phone calls and voicemails and texts I've gotten from people asking me, you know, is this legitimate as if somehow... God has appointed me the ultimate arbiter of what is from God and what is not. You know, I mean, what am, what am I supposed to say to that? I mean, I can give my reflections based on the Word of God, but I'm, I mean, I, I'm not there. I don't know. But I, I, I want to take a moment, and this will save me about 20 emails, to reflect on it uh, this morning. Because we see, for example, in when, when the, the early church prayed, it says the place where they were assembled together was shaken. This is the presence of God. And throughout church history, he shows up in miraculous ways, and he showed up with Paul when Paul needed him most. But the 16-day spontaneous spiritual revival on Asbury University's campus in Wilmore, Kentucky, had its last day, last Thursday, February 23rd, but it had been going on for almost 400 hours straight. Many of you probably heard about this. It was on Fox News and other mainstream media outlets, but if you haven't, let me just give you the quick rundown. Thousands of people from all over the country and world descended upon this small town of Wilmore, Kentucky, starting February 23rd. And the revival started on the morning of February the 8th when students at this Christian liberal arts school attended an otherwise ordinary chapel, and uh, it turned into something extraordinary. After a regularly scheduled chapel service, a group of about 20 students lingered and just began to sing and worship and pray for one another. And according to the students, as they stayed and prayed spontaneously, uh, ad hoc, an unexplained, surreal peace descended upon the room. As minutes stretched into hours, many students that had gone on to class returned to the auditorium when they heard what was going on. And they would eventually be joined by faculty and staff and then community members that began trickling onto campus to participate in this time of worship and prayer. For 16 days, a stream of pilgrims made its way to Wilmore. All of the auditorium's almost 1,500 wooden flip seats were continuously filled. The halls and archways leading to the auditorium were crammed with people hungering to join in. Crowds congregated in auditoriums and chapels elsewhere throughout Wilmore, singing and praying and reading the Bible. There was a steady diet of preaching and personal testimonies and public confession and individual and corporate prayer and scripture reading and singing. People described encountering, quote, a sweet presence or, quote, a deep peace. 
or, quote, the quiet, heavy presence of God. A sense of awe was present. One participant said it was as if, quote, heaven opened up. Sixteen days uh, over that time, other campuses across the country began to follow suit as students gathered and held their own singing and praying and testimony services. So obviously the question on everyone's mind, even secular mainstream news stations like Fox News, the reporter said, could this be a genuine move of God? Well, all we can say with certainty is we're uncertain. It could be. Certainly God moves in that way. Absolutely. We've got 6,000 years of human history to see it and 2,000 years of church history to see it. Uh, but what troubles me a little bit about some of the commentary among Christian leaders is the suggestion, and I, I saw several of them as I was kind of researching this for this message this morning, out there suggesting that this is the beginning of a great end times global revival that is going to sweep the earth and usher in the golden age of the kingdom. And as soon as everybody gets right with God, Christ is going to come back to climax the coming kingdom. Now that much I can say with absolute certainty is not what is happening here. Because that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches just the opposite. The Bible teaches that we will not see a global, worldwide revival until the Prince of Peace, the King of Kings, comes back himself in bodily form, takes the throne in the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, and rules uh, the world in perfect peace, righteousness, and justice. That's when revival will happen. The Bible paints a picture of world history that things are getting worse and worse and worse, 2 Timothy 3.13. Not better and better and better. But what we can also say on the authority of Scripture, that throughout this sin-stricken world, all of which is under the sway of the wicked one, 1 John 5.19, that there are pockets of revival at any given time going on all over the world. Some of them you hear about, some of them you don't localized times when the Spirit of God moves in a mighty way. And could that be what's happening or what happened at Asbury? It could be. Nothing theologically that would preclude that from happening. Again, I love emotional, spiritual times like that. And I've been a part of some of those spontaneous times. Nothing this significant that got, you know, global coverage, but certainly those special moments. You've been a part of them as well. Uh, I had the privilege of growing up in a very solid Bible-teaching church. It was where I surrendered to ministry at the age of 15. It was heavily influenced by godly Bible-teaching uh, men on the staff. And uh, I can remember several services. I'm, I was an unusual kid because I, I knew uh, God was calling me into ministry, and so I loved going to church. You know, my friends, they, they couldn't wait to get out. I, I loved it. I just loved sitting there. I was almost mesmerized by what the, the preachers were saying. And I can remember lots of times in that church where the, the pastor, who was very sensitive to the Holy Spirit, would, would do things that he felt like the Lord was calling him to do in that moment, and it led to a really emotional, spiritual time of reflection and contemplation of what the Lord is doing, all through the lens of Scripture. Sometimes he would get up, and instead of preaching, he'd say, you know what, I've got a message prepared, but I just, I just don't feel like the Lord wants me to say it. And then he'd start singing. He was, had, had a beautiful voice, was a recording artist, and he'd sing a hymn. And the church would just start singing, you know, and, and tears would start flowing. The altar would be flooded and people would do business with the Lord. So nothing wrong with that type of an environment if it's, it's genuinely of the Lord. But there's always a risk when you're dealing with emotions that it can be manipulated. And again, not being there, I, I don't know. 
I assume that the Spirit of God was doing something special there in, in some people's lives. But another thing that really troubles me, that I have a hard time fitting into to the biblical box about this, is knowing Asbury University. And I don't know how much you know about that school, but it, for the last 130 years since 1890, it has been not only you know, associated with, but passionately associated with, the Wesleyan holiest tradition. And I went to their website to make sure that they hadn't changed in recent years because so many schools are dropping their doctrinal distinctives and changing their alliances. But no, no, right there on their about page, very passionate. We are a Wesleyan holiness church. Well, what does that mean? That means, means they unapologetically preach a works-based gospel that teaches you must do good works to hang on to your salvation and that, in fact, believers can and should try their best to achieve perfect holiness this side of heaven. And if you just work hard enough and try hard enough and act well enough, you can be perfect this side of heaven. And oh, by the way, if you depart from the Lord or give up the faith or in any other way turn from the Lord, you're going to hell. There's no assurance, no eternal security. It's a heavily works-based salvation. So once again, what can we say, what can I say with certainty on the authority of Scripture? That is a false gospel. The Bible could not be more clear that it's not by works of righteousness which we do, but according to God's mercy He saved us. That's what our ministry at Not By Works Ministries is all about. It has been for, well, I've been passionate about it for 35 years. The ministry's been around since 99. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works. So it strikes me as odd that, you know, a, a institution that has spent 130 years leading people away from God's grace into a works-based mentality would be where the Spirit of God chooses to manifest Himself in a powerful way. But then again, maybe that's precisely who needs a manifestation of the Spirit. So to me, the really interesting question is going to be, do these young people, and it wasn't just young people, it was staff and faculty and community members that seem to have had a powerful moment with the Lord, where do they go from here? Do they embrace grace? Do they begin to champion God's amazing, matchless, wonderful grace? Or do they continue to promulgate this false teaching of a works-based gospel? So I, I, I have my feet firmly planted in midair on this uh, revival. Uh, I don't have the mind of God. I'm not here to tell you it was of God or not of God. But I'm just making some observations that come to my mind through the, the Scripture and I, I certainly want you to understand that God can, does, and has moved in powerful ways just like that. And it, it's not anything theologically inappropriate to think that he might do that. Would that he would do that here. And if we would stay focused on what God is doing through the leadership of this church and, and continue to move forward with the incredible blessings that God has poured out upon Plum Creek Chapel. You know, our founding pastor was here this morning. I had him pray. He was at the early service. He was almost in tears with what God is doing in our midst as we build on the foundation that was laid with a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. You know, I have the greatest respect for church planting pastors. I did it once. I planted a church with a student when I was in academics, and it was the hardest thing I've ever done. I lasted about two years, then I passed the reins to the student and said, it's your problem now. You know, it's, it was just, it's just tough because people are tough. You know, everybody has their own opinions, their own ideas, way things should be done, and but I tell you what, knowing what he went through to bring this church to where it is today and to see what God has done in just the last three years, it's just amazing. It's amazing to me. It's amazing. So regardless of what God may or may not uh, have been, you know, doing at Asbury, 
we know the presence of the Lord is something that has always brought great comfort and peace to God's people. I think even before the church age, going back to the children of Israel, after Moses passed the torch to Joshua and they stood on the banks of the Jordan and God gives Joshua a pep talk about what's about to happen as they go into this new era in their history, crossing the Jordan into Canaan. And he says, have not I commanded you, be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So when the odds are stacked against you, lean on the Lord's presence. When's the last time you genuinely felt the Lord's presence? The second thing we can do when the odds are stacked against us is to listen to the Lord's prescription. In other words, do you believe what the Lord tells you? It's one thing for the Lord to come alongside you, but when He speaks to you, the words of the very Creator Himself, remember Colossians and Hebrews tell us Jesus is the one who created the world. And in the beginning, God, God is plural. There's talking about the Godhead. Let us create man in our image. God, the Godhead, God of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit was part of creation. So when the Creator of the universe is talking to you, do you listen? Do you pay attention to what He's prescribing for you to do in that moment? It always amazes me how many times we act as if there's a question mark some uncertainty of some kind hanging over the Lord's words. Because we know intellectually and theologically there's not. <laughs> He's perfect. But yet we act as if there is. Let me give you an example. Um, how many people doubt their eternal salvation? I mean, I've done it. I grew up in a, you know environment sometimes at different places as my family moved and traveled a lot, especially in my grade school years where, you know, there was this encouragement to doubt whether you're really saved. Every time you sin, you might not really be saved, that kind of thing. Well, what does Jesus plainly say? John 10, 28, I give you eternal life and you shall never perish. Are you listening to that prescription? Are you believing what he said? He didn't say, I give you the possibility of eternal life or the prospect of eternal life or the potential for eternal life. He said, I give you eternal life. That's a present possession. The moment you trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation, in that instant, you pass from death to life, Jesus says, and shall never come into judgment. You have been given eternal life. You don't get eternal life when you die. You get eternal life the moment you believe the gospel. It just so happens that the first 20, 30, 50, 70, 80 years of your eternal life are spent on this old earth under the curse of sin. But eternal life begins the moment you're saved. And yet, we still doubt. It's as if we're shaking our fist at heaven and saying, Jesus, I know you gave me eternal life, but I don't really think you meant it. <laughs> Listen to the Lord's prescription. Let's see what the Lord says to Paul. Going back to verse 1, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul. What a great phrase. Be of good cheer. In other words, cheer up. In fact, those four words... In English, be of good cheer, actually one word in Greek. And, you know, when, when, when Peter and John were in prison in the early days of the church, I just talked about that a moment ago, or even Paul at times when he was in prison, sometimes the, the Lord would manifest himself by breaking them out of prison. The doors would fly open. Miraculously, he would release them from prison. And he can certainly do that. But in this instance, that's not how God chose to deal with the situation Paul found himself in. Instead, he chose to just give him some comforting words of encouragement. Cheer up. And, and sometimes, in fact, every time, that should be enough. 
don't overlook the cheer up from the Lord because he didn't do exactly what you expected or wanted him to do. Pretty sure God has a better perspective than we do. So we, we like to tell God how to fix things, you know, and God just sometimes sits back confidently, cheer up, it's okay, I've got this. So if we look at those, uh, if those, that one word that are translated with four words, be of good cheer, it's the word tharseo, it's used eight times in the New Testament. One lexicon, the kind of the most respected classic lexicon says it means to be firm or resolute in the face of danger or adverse circumstances. But I like another one of the lexicons that puts it more colloquially, cheer up, cheer up. It's the same word, tharseo, that Jesus used in the upper room when he told the disciples, hey, you're going to face some trouble. I'm about to go away, but be of good cheer. Cheer up. I've overcome the world. They were about to watch their master, their savior, their Lord die a cruel death. And yet he's telling them, cheer up, I've overcome the world. Because it's precisely through his death and resurrection that he defeated death, hell, and the grave. And that's how he overcame the world. It's the same exact word that Jesus used on another occasion. When, the, when he was walking on the water. You remember that? And the disciples saw him and they thought he was a ghost. <laughs> and they were troubled. And immediately he says to them, Tharseo, be of good cheer. We need to listen to the Lord's prescription. Are you going through a, a storm of some kind this morning? Remember the Lord is with you, but don't just acknowledge His presence. Hear His comforting voice. What else can we do when the odds are stacked against us? Well, we need to live by the promises that He gives us. And the Lord goes on in this verse to give a promise to Paul. So the Lord stood by him. The Lord said, be of good cheer, Paul. And then he goes on to say, as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so, must, so you must also bear witness at Rome. And with these words of promise, Paul knew that whatever else he might face in the hours and days to come, and indeed over the next two years, he would escape with his life. And today... You know, the Lord's promises don't come from some subjective nebulous, you know, bowl of spaghetti or cloud formations. They come from the Word of God. And the Bible has given, God has given us in the Bible everything we need for life and godliness. Peter tells us that. And he says he's given to us exceedingly great and precious promises in his Word. So are you struggling to... Feel the presence of the Lord, listen to the word of the Lord, and own the promises that He's given to you? When's the last time you were in the Word of God? Because that's how we come to know His promises. And what's going to happen is when we're facing a, a situation where the odds seem insurmountable, it's then that the Holy Spirit is going to use the implanted word within us to bring it to our remembrance and remind us of all of the comforting. Uh, unwavering promises of the Lord. Paul tells us in his last letter uh, that he hadn't written yet at the time that we're dealing with in his journey, but he would go on to write uh, about 10 years later. He says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction and in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Man of God meaning the child of God, the man or woman of God may be mature and equipped I love what Paul said in 2 Corinthians. In the context here, he's defending his apostleship before that church. 
uh, who was highly critical of him. And he says this, For all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. And that's a great way to describe God's complete trustworthiness. All the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, amen. God is completely trustworthy. Not 90%, not 95% reliable. He fulfills his promises 100% of the time. And in the context, Paul is making the argument that the pro- since the promises of God demonstrate his consistency, the, the apostolic word that Paul was preaching based on revelation from God was just as reliable as God's promises. And in view of the faithfulness of God, as Paul says here, the only proper response is amen. Amen. Let it be so is what that literally means. And the early church Christians would commonly speak this word in unison at their meetings in order to affirm the truthfulness of what someone said. In other words, when someone is testifying or speaking the word of God or saying something that is true doctrinally and biblically, people would spontaneously say, amen. By the way, we could use a few more amens around the church today. Thank you. Amen. Amen. Uh, So... um, No, the corporate vocal amen really helps build unity. It draws attention to the reliability of God's word, and it it shows, hey, yeah, we agree. Let it be so. And so when we read and know and understand and memorize and meditate on the word of God, it gives us a deep sense of peace no matter what the circumstance. Remember the words of King David. I love this verse in Psalm 25. The secret of the Lord is with those who fear him, meaning Reverent, have reverence for him, respect him, know him. The secret of the Lord. What does that mean? Well, it means that for believers who know the Lord and know his word, we have the certainty and the knowledge that the world doesn't have. That's the reason when a believer goes through a rough time, a, a, a difficult time, if they're filled with the Spirit and walking with the Lord, they just they look different than a panicked unbeliever who has no hope. But we can just calmly rely on the promises of the Lord. Things like, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Why do we care if they're going to take our life? You know, for for believers, death is the golden key that unlocks the riches of eternity. The psalmist said, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. We don't fear death. And it's those secret, not mystical or hard to understand, but just things that the world can't know. Because it doesn't have the indwelling Holy Spirit and it doesn't know the Lord Jesus. But we do. So we have this knowledge that reminds us of his covenants, his promise, promises. And when we meditate on his word, his precepts, and contemplate his ways, when we delight ourselves in his statutes and not forget his word, it brings us a different sense of peace. So that no matter what the odds are against us, God's on our side. Have you forgotten some of the Lord's word? Have you forgotten some of his promises? We need to look for the Lord's, I mean, sorry, live by the Lord's promises. What promises have you forgotten? And then finally, and here's where the story really gets, gets fun and, and interesting. Uh, so not only lean on the Lord's presence, listen to the Lord's protect, prescription and live by the Lord's promises, but look for his protection. And the rest of this historical account is fascinating to me. The Lord's protection can come in very unexpected ways. 
And I love the turn that this story takes. It involves a young boy, Paul's nephew, in fact, who's probably not more than eight or ten years old. And God uses him to get Paul out of this seemingly impossible predicament. Let's read on. And when it was day, so the next day, it's now June 4th, 57 A.D., and this is the most detailed description of a plot against Paul anywhere in Acts. It says, Some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. And I want you to notice the number of times in these next few verses that Luke uses that phrase, killed Paul. Because he's wanting to highlight the fact this was a serious predicament. These people were out for blood. They would stop at nothing until Paul was murdered. And he goes on to tell us, now there were more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy. Now I know what some of you are thinking, uh, there's no such thing as conspiracy theories, uh, but I'm here to tell you there are, and the Bible has many of them. And for, you know, I might mention that I don't believe in conspiracy theories except the ones that are true. And the greatest conspiracy theory known to man is the conspiracy between Satan, demons, and human agents to take over the world and usurp God's control. And that's what I've written about in my Spirit of the Antichrist books, the Luciferian conspiracy. It's straight out of Scripture, Psalm 2. But here's another conspiracy. A conspiracy is just two or more people working together to commit a crime or do something evil. Here there were 40 of them coming together to try to kill Paul. And they had, they had agreed together not to taste food or to drink until Paul was dead. And their plan was to have the chief priests and elders of Israel, the members of the Sanhedrin, ask the Roman commander to return Paul once again back to the Sanhedrin for further questioning. So let's read on. They came to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. Now you, therefore, together with the council, suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him. But we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So these assassins planned to, to lie in wait somewhere between the fortress of Antonia, where Paul was being kept, and the chamber of hewn stone where the Sanhedrin uh, met, and that was not very far apart. And by the way, this vow that they had made was a pretty serious one. I mean, these plotters surely had to know, given who they were going up against, the Roman guard and all of its centurions and squadrons, that some of them would probably die in the process. To, to fulfill their vow of killing Paul, they were going to have to die. It's not like Paul was just going to be aimlessly walking through the streets because he was under guard. And Claudius Lysias, the Roman guard, was going to make sure that nothing happened to him because he was under penalty of death if he allowed a Roman citizen to unjustly be killed. So this was a pretty serious thing. Just to give you some diagrams here, I know we've looked at these in previous weeks, but this is a diagram of the Temple Mount. And up there in the northwest corner, if this was positioned uh, right, and that's the northwest corner, is the fortress of Antonia. That's where Claudius Lysias, the Roman commander, was stationed, and that's where Paul was about to be flogged. If you remember a few weeks ago, we looked at that passage. Uh, but that's where he was currently staying. This arrow is pointing to the little chamber of hewn stone where the Sanhedrin met right outside, you know, in, in the main part of the Temple Mount there, right outside the Holy of, of Holies. And so here is... Uh, that chamber that we looked at last time, and you can see in the inset there, the little red rectangle, that's where it was located. So it really was not that far uh, for them to walk across the court of the Gentiles, either through the gate uh, there, uh, and then across the courtyard over to the t chamber of Hewn Stone, which is probably what they would have done. I guess they could have gone all the way around. 
but it wasn't that far of a walk. And so here's what happens. Luke tells us, when Paul's sister's son heard of their ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. And then Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, take this young man to the commander, for he has something to tell him. Now, we know nothing more about Paul's sister than what Luke has revealed right here. She may have lived in Jerusalem. She may have been in Tarsus. We don't really know for sure. But this is the only reference to any of Paul's immediate family anywhere in the New Testament. And the Greek word that I've highlighted there in red, young man, it's just one word in Greek, and it, it can refer in context to refer to both young boys, but also to younger men in their 20s or even their 30s. And we know from the context in verse 19, which I'm going to look at in a second, that in this case he, we were dealing with a young child because the commander took him by the hand and dealt with him like a, a young child and pulled him aside to talk to him, you know. In this day, as, as it was even in our own country as recently as 100 years ago, children were a lot smarter than they are today. The Luciferians have done a good job since the turn of the 20th century convincing us to remain children longer by playing with our minds and compulsory government schooling and all that, the whole I don't want to grow up, I'm, I'm a Toys R Us kid mantra, that's, that's part of the propaganda. But back in the day, it wasn't that way. In the founding of our country, Thomas Jefferson at the age of 13, or maybe 12 actually, had you know, 200 employees working directly for him. He was their supervisor. I mean, that, that's the way it used to be. Today, you know, I know some 30-year-olds that haven't grown up yet. Well, I know some, you know, adults that haven't grown up yet either, but that's another story. But, but you know, in this day, you would not treat a 20-something-year-old like that. The fact that this was, you know, going on indicates this was probably a very young man. Now, Paul could receive visitors in the barracks where he was a prisoner, because he was a Roman citizen in protective custody, and he could also summon a centurion like he did here to come over and do favors uh, for him. And that's exactly what he did. So he took him and brought him, this is the centurion, took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul the prisoner called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. Then the commander took him by the hand, went aside, and asked privately, you know, what is it that you have to tell me? You almost see him kind of kneeling down saying, Hello there, young man. You know, what's going on? What would you like to say? And so Paul's nephew says, The Jews have agreed to ask that you bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire more fully about him. But do not yield to them, for more than 40 of them lie in wait for him, men who have bound themselves by an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed Paul. There it is again. And now they are ready uh, for the, uh, and waiting for the promise uh, from you. So the commander, and my computer's about to go dead, sorry, this is a real uh, first class operation here, that's what I love about our church, we're so familiar. I'm back, for those of you that are live streaming, I did not get raptured, though I wish I would, uh, no such luck, um, but we were about to lose our live stream feed. Um, so, uh, you know, the, the commander, uh, you know, says to the, let the young man depart, and commanded him, tell no one that you have revealed uh, these things uh, to me. So one of the reasons the commander would have taken what this young boy said seriously is because he knew Ananias, the high priest, the leader of the Sanhedrin, very well. This was a corrupt leader, an unbelieving Jew, and he knew that this high priest would very readily go along with any plot or conspiracy to kill Paul. And, and, and we, we know that if he allowed that, he would, the commander himself would have been in trouble. So we're going to leave it off here, but when we pick up the story next time, 
the commander realized that Paul's you know, enemies would stop at nothing to see him killed. And as long as Paul was in Jerusalem, there was also danger of rioting. I mean, if, if there was a murder in the streets, war was going to break out. The guards would have attacked the conspirators. The conspirators, some of them would have died, and it would have been on blood on the hands of the commander, and then he would have been in big trouble. So what we're going to see when we pick up the story next time is that the commander then, under very heavy Roman guard, steals Paul away at night uh, under cover of darkness. So God can make a way where there seems to be no way. Even when things seem hopeless, like the situation for the young man in the chess painting that I talked about, you know, there's always a way out. And if God can use a young boy who happened to be in the right place at the right time, he can use anyone or anything to solve our problem. So look for the Lord's protection. Don't describe to the Lord what you want to happen. Just go to the Lord, sense his presence, listen to his word, trust his promises, and let him protect you. It may not be the way you think, but God has the right perspective, and he can, he can always find a way out. So lean on the Lord's presence, listen to the Lord's prescription, live by his promises, and look for his protection. So the takeaway is this. When the odds are stacked against you, always remember, with the Lord on your side, the odds are always in your favor. The odds are always in your favor. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much once again for this fascinating account that as believers gives us encouragement and hope uh, as we face uncertain times and as each one of us in this room brings uh, to this place today personal burdens and heaviness and difficulties. Lord, help us to recognize that you're bigger than all of this and help us to get our eyes off of ourselves and our needs and our wants and our desires and our opinions and instead focus on what you're doing, not only in our lives and in our world, but Lord, just in the church. And, and this, these are exciting times. And, and Lord, we want to be a part of that and not miss it. And Lord, for those who may not know you, if there's one listening to the sound of my voice, I pray that today the Spirit of God would convict them of their need for a Savior. And in simple childlike faith, they would place their faith in Jesus Christ, your Son and our Savior, who died and rose again to pay their personal penalty for sin. Lord, help us not to keep our eyes on the odds stacked against us, but on the one whose odds are always in favor, and that's you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.